0: two-thirds to 75% of change management initiatives fail. One of the chief reasons that come up time and time again is because the people who are on the end of change are not brought into the process, so they feel like change is happening to them, not change happening for them.
1: Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it.
0: All right, everybody, thanks for joining me today. I am your, the host of today's Fishbowl. I'm Charlie Gilkey from ProductiveFlourishing.com. I'm an executive coach and an author, and I really help, well, I do two things. I help people do their best work, but when I'm working with teams, organizations, and leaders, I really help people work better together and to create companies that people want to go to work to and, you know, to create work that people want to do. So this is actually a part of a series. Um, The last thing that we taught or the last fishbowl was actually an overview of the different team habits that we have in place. I have a forthcoming book coming out this August called Team Habits. Um and if you want to follow along, please join me at flourishing.com forward slash fishbowl. Um you'll get to take the Team Habits quiz, which will just look at the different we'll ask you some questions and sort of show you based upon your responses, what are the cat- the categories that are going to be the most powerful for you and your team to work on. So today we're going to talk about how to improve your team's meeting habits. I want to start out with a few things. Like I just said, meetings get a terrible rap because a lot of meetings are bad. One of the reasons that meetings are bad is, well, a lot of us haven't been trained on how to have, how to host a good meeting. And we don't have organizations that have team habits around collaboration and communication and belonging that allow us to speak up about meetings that are not so hot. So you join me today because we want to work on that and let's get it. The other reason a lot of meetings can be bad is because meetings um, can be, uh, most meetings I've learned in the work that I do are actually crutch meetings. And they're crutch meetings because the other habits, the other team habits around goal setting and prioritization, belonging, communication, decision making, coordination, and supporting each other in the work are really bad. And so we don't know what to do. So we have a meeting. As we work on our meeting structures, as we work on those other team habits, what we find time and time again is that we don't need to have nearly as many meetings. So the um, first thing to think about when we start thinking about meetings is why are we having the meeting? And is are meetings a, a result of poor team habits around some other things around like say, decision-making, coordination, so on and so forth. So that's sort of, in, that's ideal one. Idea two is I want us to really reframe how we think about how much time a meeting takes, because in many people's perspective, when they initiate a meeting, it's like, oh, it's just going to take an hour. Y'all, we know this. It's not just an hour. If you have a team of five people, a one hour meeting is actually five team hours. But wait, there's more. Most meetings takes 15 minutes on the front side to sort of transition into and prep for and at least 15 minutes on the back side. So that means that that simple like, hey, let's just get together to take an hour to get this discussed actually has cost your team eight and a half hours. This is why that well-worn meme of like, you know, what with the Lawrence burn, like what if I told you this could have been an email instead? That's why it's so funny and poignant in that so many of the yeah, eight and a half team, hour meetings could have been someone doing the work of writing, you know, the brief email or the brief sort of loom video or whatever technology that you use to explain what's going on. They spent that time and the rest of the people can watch it for five minutes, answer it and move on with the rest of the day. So next time you catch yourself or you catch a teammate saying, Hey, it's just gonna, let's just get together for 30 minutes and talk about this. Multiply that by the number of people showing up um, and really convey like, do we really need to have that meeting? Last thing that I want to talk about here is to start thinking about meetings and the six different meeting building blocks. Um, This is a way that we can compose meetings and really be intentional about what we're trying to do. And maybe that meeting doesn't need to be an hour. Maybe it needs to be 90 minutes. Maybe it needs to be 15 minutes. So I'll just run them down real quick. The six uh, meeting blocks you have, or six different kinds of uh, meeting blocks that you have for meetings. So one is the decision-making block. And the decision-making block of a meeting is just what it sounds like. It's where you get together and there's some decision, there's some problem that's been framed, and you have the meeting to get to a final decision. Two, planning blocks. You come together. And the idea is to go from, you know, the intent or to come from the broad idea to go to some sort of plan. So planning blocks. Third is brainstorming blocks. These are not to be confused with the first two blocks. With brainstorming blocks, the idea is not to close things up. That's what decision making blocks and planning planning blocks are about. With brainstorming session, brainstorming blocks, you're actually trying to open ideas. A lot of people facilitating are part of a meeting. Get frustrated when people keep brainstorming when they need to be closing. And well, what's happening is the team at hand hasn't actually intentionally coordinated or intentionally aligned around what type of block they need in this moment. Fourth type of block are your bonding blocks. I don't remember what they sound like. These are where you get to know each other, where you build trust and rapport. This is where you build belonging. This is where you realize that you're more than just workers. This might be those blocks of the meetings where you talk about Bolt's rivalry or the favorite books that you read or. I know that light question that I asked Crystal before she jumped out. I'm like, what was her favorite meeting? Well, it also gave us some time to bond and let me figure out what jazzes her up. I know more about Crystal now. Um, and so that's super dope. Fifth type of block are your review blocks. And this is where you're reviewing documents together real time. You're sort of coming together to either review that or to review what's happened over the last little bit of time to give that sort of thing. And the last block are your update blocks. What they sound like. There's where you're giving people updates on projects and things like that. In my um, experience, update blocks are overused in meetings. Those are the ones that could have been an email, could have been a Loom video. It could have been, you know, you updating it in your work management software or writing a quick note. But because those practices, those team habits aren't in place, we got to spend some time updating each other. And so um, for what it's worth, if you're looking for diagnosing, you're, you're using these sort of blocks to look at your meetings, I would say really be careful about those update blocks because those are the ones that are actually the easiest to get out if you use the coordinative technology that you have around you. I am excited about today's fishbowl, not because I get to talk and give you these ideas that you know you can get from Productive Flourishing. Again, you can go to productiveflourishing.com forward slash fishbowl. But I'm really excited to get to talk to you and answer your questions and help you sort of improve your team's meeting habits. So let's 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 deliver on that promise. Crystal, let me know that we had a question.
1: So say for instance, how when you're having a meeting and you're trying to stay on topic and you're noticing that certain individuals Kind of like veer off topic. How do you keep the meeting staying organized where it, the input doesn't go left and then stretches out the meeting longer? How do you try to avoid that? This is a
0: great question, Nicole. Thanks for asking it. Um, part of what's happening in that scenario is that the different teammate or the other teammate may not have remembered what meeting block that you're in or what the point of the meeting was. Typically, what happens is, especially in decision making and planning blocks, people can slide into a brainstorming block um, and sort of start giving that or they can, you know, zoom up. I'm, as you know, I can be really bad about that, Nicole. The common way of doing this, you might have to tailor it based upon your team and, and where you are is to call it the parking lot, you know, and say, you know, hey, Taylor, like that's a great conversation. Love to pull that up again. But let's put that in the parking lot for now because we're really trying to like decide about this particular topic and we're getting a little bit off track. And if you do that, Nicole, what it does is it doesn't necessarily shut Taylor's input down, and it doesn't right. make them feel like, like they're not valued, but it reminds everybody what you're trying to do and can hopefully get that filtered. Now, the point with this or the practice for everyone is, y'all, if we invoke the parking lot, let's make sure to have a practice so that we actually look at that parking lot as we're starting to develop our next meeting agenda. So that, you know, the sort of phrase of let's put it in the parking lot does it in practice mean we're not ever going to talk about this again.
1: Right. Right.
0: Does that help? Nicole? Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate you asking the question. Philip, I see you. I'm going to go ahead and pull you up. Because I really like what you said about the, uh, the six
1: uh, meeting blocks. How do I communicate this to my colleagues without being like a smart ass employee?
0: Without being a as smart-ass employee, kind of tugging cheek here, Philip, what we're doing with Team Habits is giving people resources so you can say, hey, can we try this? And then like blame me for the idea. I um, mean, you can say, hey, this might be a cool idea. But I think who builds meeting agendas? Well, let me let me pause. What I didn't say in our setup, Philip, is when I say team, I mean the four to eight people that you work with 80% of the time, right? And in that team, we typically have a lot of rapport. We have a lot of influence. We have a lot of collaboration in there. Um, let's brainstorm it together. Let's, um, let's imagine you were either taking notes or I'm going to send you, you know, some assets after this. What would be the non-confrontational, easy way for you to share it with your team? Good question. Maybe by message afterwards? So let's brainstorm. What, what would you say? Mm, like, hey, I joined this meeting in my spare time and I learned uh, these concepts. Maybe they could be beneficial to our team. I mean, if you want to take a little bit more sort of ownership of it and say, hey, I'd like to try to use some of this in our next meetings. Does anyone have a problem with that? And then is there one that particularly jumped out to you that you want to do or is it just the idea of using them to shape the meeting for you? What I appreciate about Philip's question is, again, with that framing of our team, people we work with day in, day out, if we sort of approach it from the, path, from the empathy that we're all doing things most of us are at our limits. Also interested in trying things that are going to make work better. The challenge that often happens is that people don't want to go first and they don't want to own a thing. So you can kind of see what I coached or suggested for Philip in that case, which just be like, hey, there's this idea. I like it. I think it could be helpful for us. I would like to give it a shot. Does anyone have a problem with that? Um, instead of making that someone else's decision to figure out and making it someone else's sort of thing. He can own that. And that takes a little bit of courage because we might try something and it'd be like, it not work well, but it also gets the ball going. It also gets things going, you know, in the last time in the last fish ball, I talked about the, the analogy of broken printers. And so I'll pull that one back up for this conversation as, as who's ever thinking about asking a question is, will raise the hand. Um, so, you know, in every organization I've worked at or consulted at, there's been this broken printer that everybody knows about. Some of y'all are chuckling because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like this has been broken for years. It's in the conference room and you got to move it out every time you're going to have it do it. Or it has that stupid streak in it that always pisses you off. Or you got to like press the code four times and hit enter and then, you know, um, send prayers to the tech gods like that printer. It's broken. We all know it's broken and ain't nobody fixing. it. And the funny thing about the, the really funny and not funny part about the printer is it's like a $500 decision or less that someone could make in 30 minutes. But because the printer is broken, we have workarounds. We don't print things out. Um, it's a pain in the butt. Like, you know, someone has one of those like, you know, F- FML moments where they're just like, I can't do this anymore. All because someone, no one decided to, um, fix it. And so meetings can be like those broken printers. Like we kind of all know they're broken and we know it's taken a bunch of our time. We know we'd rather not go to it. And yet we're not making some of the decisions and some of the suggestions on how to fix it. So the team habits approach is to say, Hey, between us four to eight folks, like we're going to be showing up, we're going to be doing this work for a long time. What can we do together to make work better? Because if we make our team's life better, we make 80% of our work better. There's just gonna be stupid stuff we can't fix because of whatever reason, but there's a lot that we can. So that's the other main takeaway that I want you to think about when it comes to this is if there's something in your meetings that you're not liking and you're just participating in it, you're actually affirming that habit. Just like any other habit, if you keep doing a habit, you reinforce the habit and you create the tendency to do that, that particular behavior again. So having just a little bit of courage to say, you know what, can we, can we start our meetings with a little bit of bonding, a little bit of getting to know each other? A great question for that, by the way, that's, that's really safe for all organizations. So you don't get into, you know, public soul journaling, which can be really terrifying in some scenarios. It's just like, Hey, what's a non-work win that you've had over the last week? What's a non-work win? Starting your meetings with that just as a little bonding block opens up so many different things that you'll learn about other people. You'll learn that there's other bikers and mountain climbers or gamers, or you know, you'll learn someone loves a particular comic or music. You'll just learn a lot about each other, and we all appreciate being seen, and we all sort of can be fun to talk about those non-work wins. And so, just that would be one thing you can try to get to know your team better, and why that's important is teams with higher belonging tend to have much higher performance. You tend to be able to get through stuff together. You tend to be able to do hard things together. You tend to be able to have hard conversations. And fundamentally, it makes you want to go to work more when you like and know and really have rapport with the people you work with. Just remember, with your team, you have a lot of rapport, and there's a lot you can do to fix some of those broken printers. So um, I had a question that says, hi, Charlie. Um, how does the team habits approach work for those who fight team management? This is a great question. Thanks for sending it in. The funny thing about change management, well, there are a few things about change management that we need to get real about. Um, two-thirds to 75% of change management initiatives fail. This is a no-known, Google it. Like, it's just one of the things that people in the space that I am, we know they fail. And there are lots of reasons why they fail. But one of the chief reasons that come up time and time again is because the people Who are on the end of change are not brought into the process. So they feel like change is happening to them, not change happening for them, which makes a funny thing. When it's our thing that we want to change, it's always good. It's always in the best of intentions. And we're really excited about that change. When it's somebody else's change, maybe not. Can we just not? So. One principle to make team change happen is to start with really assessing why it's a beneficiary, why it's a great change for your teammates and actually communicating that with them in terms that they use. It's a political and it's a sales process. In a future fishbowl, I want to be careful that we don't veer too far off. Um, in a future fishbowl, we might talk about how to sell a problem because too many times in teams, we're so focused on selling a solution that we forget that people actually don't buy the problem that we had in the first place. So the reason I'll talk about the broken printer is you've had one of those, you know, there's a problem. No one needs to sell you on the problem. What they probably need to sell you on that it's an important enough problem in everything else going on to solve. So the team habits approach helps because again, you're When you think about change management, largely you're thinking about large organizations, like hundreds of people, maybe 50 people trying to change at once. When we're talking about team habits, we're talking about, again, four to eight people. Those four to eight people are not fundamentally other. It's not us versus them. It's Taylor. It's Josh. It's Nicole. It's Megan. People you show up with every day. If they're resisting it, there's typically... Two or three reasons they're resisting it. One, you have not sold the value of the change. We only change when the outcome of change feels a lot greater than the process of change, right? We only change when the outcome feels a lot greater than the process of change. Fundamentally, even for people who say they're not, like they struggle with habits, we are fundamentally creatures of habit. We like to do the thing that we did yesterday. Well, we like to do a lot of the things that we did yesterday, and we like to choose where our novelty is. So I'm the guy that when I go to the coffee shop, I order the same cappuccino every day. I'm at the point to where I don't even have to order because they know when they see me what to make. So I like that, right? But if my work was the same thing day in and day out, well, I would choose a different job, right? Because I need to have some of that novelty. So we want to choose... Where our novelty is, we want to have a lot of things stay the same. So, one reason they resist it is you haven't sold the change. Second reason they resist it is you haven't provided a realistic pathway to show how to make that change happen. Right? Usually you bite off too much. The reason why I want us to focus on team habits is there's small, small changes. There's small changes like what I mentioned earlier when it comes to your meeting habits. I'm just carving off five minutes to ask about non-work wins. There's small habits like leaving five minutes at the end so that you can capture next actions or developing the team habit that like if you get to 52 minutes and you're done, just giving people the gift of those eight minutes or those five minutes to go breathe and do something else and walk and not just have the meeting go to an hour because you said so. Right? Small changes, another small change, making a team habit. And by team habit, I mean, we all do this as a team. It's not Charlie does this, but everybody else doesn't. It's Charlie does this, Nicole does this, Angela does this, Steve does this. It's just part of what we do. Small team habit around, you know, the rule of no meeting without no agenda or excuse me, no agenda, no meeting. That's the rule. And that agenda could be as small as saying, hey, we are coming together to dis- to decide on this. Okay, that's enough of an agenda. I know why I need to show up, I know why I don't. Now the small habit of setting more inclusive meeting habits, or excuse me, meeting titles. And by inclusive, I mean there are certain roles or certain ind- or certain types of words that we use that kind of um, make people feel like they won't have anything to, to provide. So for instance, a marketing strategy meeting might make people feel like they don't have anything to add if they don't consider themselves no marketers or strategists. Even just changing that to marketing planning meeting, like open it up so that more people can join. Right. Um, so just thinking about those types of things, small, small changes like that over time make a huge difference. And so. This is how you address the second challenge people have, which is like the change feels too big. The third reason people will resist change or resist, you know, making a change is they feel like the work is going to be on their end and they're really busy and overwhelmed. Um, and they just don't feel up for it. And so again, in that scenario, you can take on more of the ownership yourself and be clear about what you're expecting out of people. Again, that's a communication team habit is being clear about what to expect out of people. Um, I think the fourth thing people resist change, a change management, um, programs is because they feel like they don't have an option to opt out. And I know as much as I said that we want everybody to be on board, like if someone's really busy and they're just going through things right now and they just need to be like, hey, appreciate what you're doing. I, I am not up for it right now. I'm so slammed for us to be like, okay, I got that. And either you don't have to because we're, here's what I'm going to do to cover for that. Or let's rally as a team and see if we just need to pause this for a little bit and come back in a month. I think when you address sort of those four prongs and you take them seriously and you approach them with a sense of empathy and imagination, a lot of that resistance actually fades away um, and you either get people's buy-in and support or you give great ways for people to opt in, opt out and focus on what they need to without feeling like this thing was just forced upon. So that's a great question. Thanks for asking. All righty, if you have a question, you'd like to raise your hand and come on up, please do let me know.
1: Hey, everybody. Hey, Charlie. Something I wanted to ask you here is I came from the Bay Area and um, I live in Sacramento now and super grateful like, to be in an area where there's innovation, but there's also a lot of humility. So the team that I work with right now um, is still kind of like um, going through some growing pains. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, and you know, when there's really big personalities what are what are some strategies like as a teacher how to like use humor and vulnerability to where you like hey let's be a team i know there's a couple things you said but maybe you can tell me with a pe teacher lens cuz i do a lot of sports but sometimes i don't know how to have those conversations
0: Give me a little bit more context and I could probably be a bit more helpful, right? So, but before I do, um, Danny, you mentioned that, um, the team is still coming together. Have you heard of the, um, Tuckman team development model? I have not. Okay. So here we go. You're going to love this one, I think. So it's a well-worn model. It's got its critics, but it's really useful for this format. So teams go through four different phases. They form, they storm, they norm, and then perform. Okay. So let's walk through those. So they come together. That's the forming stage. That's the honeymoon stage. That's where everybody's super excited about potential and like cool new people. And you get to learn a lot of folks. It seems like everything's possible in the forming stage. Then they go into storming, which is what it sounds like. Like personalities come out and different quirks come out and different, you know, sort of things start popping up. You know, once you work through storming, you start norming, which is saying like, Hey, here's how we do things. Here's what works. Here's what's not working. And then you get to performing. And then if a teammate leaves or there's a major structure, you might start forming again. Because, you know, you got, your, you got your squad of five people. A new person joins. Guess what? You might start forming, storming, norming, and performing all over again. Okay? So why this is really useful, Daniel, is because so many people, when that storming period happens, try to actually keep it from happening and try to avoid the conflict that comes up in the tension. But the only way you get to norming and performing is actually to talk about it and to have some of those conversations and to sort of lean into them, right? And so what I heard when in your diagnosis of what's going on is the team's forming and some of the personalities are starting to lead to the storming pieces of it. And that's not necessarily a problem. That's what I love about talking about team habits because we can depersonalize it. We can depersonalize those interactions and you know, and if it's like Greg, who's just loud and excitable and wants to, you know, always dominate the conversation, then in a one-on-one conversation, you might be able to go to Greg and be like, "Look, I really love your enthusiasm, ideas, and I don't know if you know it's co- it might be coming across this way. I'd really love to hear what Naomi has to say in the next meeting. So maybe we can like both together hold some space so that Naomi Naomi gets to speak up." Right. And then in that next meeting, meetings are where all the, a lot of the other team habits come to play all at once, which is why they can be so challenging. But then in that next meeting, when you see, you know, Greg starting to do his thing, you might just be able to give him the nod or sort of the, you know, whatever, whatever sort of cue you have. And he might be like, oh, damn, like I'm doing the thing. I didn't know I was doing the thing. And he might just calm down just a little bit. And then you could be like, hey, Naomi, like, I'm really curious what's coming up for you. And you can kind of do that. And what that will do is start to create norms where people can sort of see who's speaking up and who's not speaking up. I mean, we can go from there. Now, a pro tip here is if Naomi is one of those folks that she's, you know, a deliberate thinker and sort of introverted, she or they may not want to be called upon. But at least by talking to Greg, you're giving space for other people to talk to
1: I'm going to look that up and see if I can find a uh, cliff notes for that.
0: Yeah, it's the Tuckman team development model. You can find it on Wikipedia. I also discuss it in my book, Team Habits, right, and how it plays with that. So, you know, um, it's a great thing to look at, think about. And the other thing about it, Daniel, if you share it with your team is, again, it depersonalizes some of the tension and conflict in the team because you can just simply say, hey, look, it's cool. We're storming. This happens. This happens for all teams. What are we going to do to work better together? approach it from there. Really appreciate your question.
1: I thought I'd share this before I leave since you really helped me out. One hack that really works well for me when coffee, I'm not in the mood for coffee. I'll take like a 15 second cold shower at the middle of the day or in the evening. And that should give me a little bit more capacity.
0: A 15 second cold shower. I love it. I love it.
1: Thanks Um, for your help, man.
0: Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Daniel. Um, Great question. Thanks for asking. Let's see, I've got another question. How do you give feedback to your leaders, managers on having a good structure for meetings? Another thing I'm trying to do with the team habits approach is not make so much of this leaders and managers' problems to solve. And so we could give feedback on what our managers or leaders are doing when it comes to meeting agendas and meeting structures. Or, and this will hopefully the leaders and managers on the call will be like, yes, please. Or we can say, hey, Amy, I'd love to experiment with our meeting structures and I'm willing to take on coming up with some different agendas and being the facilitator. Are you okay with that? Notice the difference. This goes back to what I think it was Patrick's name. I may have forgotten it already. Instead of saying, hey, manager, leader, this is your thing that you need to fix. You're saying, hey, this is our thing. I see a change I would like to have happen. I'm willing to take that on. Is that okay? Like. It, it assumes sort of that forward motion and initiative versus just feeling like you're criticizing someone. And I just want to shout out to to mid managers. Like I have a big heart for mid managers because you're sort of got the two way pinch. You got senior executives pinching you in one way, and you got teammates pinching you in another way, and it's super hard. But when we again approach it from a place of imagination and empathy and ownership, that's the third thing I need to be. Maybe it's less about giving feedback and more about Proposing a change that you're going to like lean into and see through versus pushing it on somebody else. Right, so that's how I would approach that, that sort of thing. Don't give feedback, give a plan and proposal and push it forward. All righty. Crystal, I see you, I'm going to pull you on up.
1: I would love to find out what your tips are for managing team meetings when two or more team members do not get along and there are actually cliques that are forming to support like team whoever, you know, team Y, what can someone do to facilitate or should they call out that there's an issue or should they just work with the two people that are having the feud? I mean, what's a good way to dispel the tension?
0: Yeah, so typically dispelling tensions in a group setting is not, not what I would recommend. Um, we have, mm-hmm. a, we have a tendency to dig into our positions in group settings, um, and feel yeah. and shame. And so I think that's more of an offline scenario. The general rule is we want to avoid triangles in organizations and teams as much as possible. And by triangles, I mean, let's imagine that Taylor and Alex are get into a thing. And then Crystal, you become the sort of mediator between those two. And then you're always mm-hmm mediating between Alex and Taylor. We want to avoid that as much as possible. But a lot of times what needs to happen is, you know, if Alex and Taylor are getting into it, Crystal, you might be like, say, like, look, y'all, this has been coming up in meetings, I didn't want to call it out there. But I'm wondering what we can do to resolve this tension here. Like, it seems like, um, you know, we got some stuff going on. And here's where, you know, I'll talk about this in the belonging chapter of Team Habits. Uh, Crystal, have you ever worked in like food service or restaurants or anything like that before? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. Doing employee relations for that. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, if you've ever worked in that or maybe constructions, like when you're working in close quarters with people in that way, you'll bump into them. Like, you know, you'll run around a corner and someone will have plates and they'll bump into you. Or maybe you're making something and you give someone an elbow. And it's just, those bumps happen day in, day out. And most of the times it's just people working fast and there's nothing personal about it. I mean, sometimes it's creepy and sometimes it's intentional, but 90, 95% of the time it's not. Well, it turns out in a lot of the work that we do, that's knowledge work and, you know, sort of, you know, white collar work, we still have those same bumps. So we're just not physically elbowing each other because we have our own desk. And so a great way that you can approach this crystal is instead of making it, Alex is doing something to Taylor intentionally to like make Taylor feel bad or to humiliate them or vice versa. You can say, look, it seems like you two are bumping into each other on this issue. We don't have to make it personal, but just let's really talk about what's going on and see if there's a way we can work better together to eliminate some of those bumps. Like what's, what's really going on here? And you might find that maybe it's not the resource grab and conflict, but there's just something else going on um, that, they, that can be worked out at that level.
1: I love that. Thank you so much. That's, that's an awesome analogy. Thank you.
0: Crystal's point there actually brought up what I was saying earlier. Meetings become the context, the sky, the arena that all the other team habits pop in, right, and sort of play out in. And so in the scenario that she was talking about, what I would say in there is like there's some belonging, something going on with that team's belonging and their rapport and so on and so forth that's showing up in the meeting. And, you know, really when we unpack the team habits model, what we see is, you know, poor team habits around belonging will show up in divisiveness in um, communication habits or meeting habits or collaborations. And so sometimes to fix your meetings, you don't need to fix your meetings. You need to fix your belonging. Sometimes to fix your belonging, you don't need to fix your meetings. You need to fix your communication. Um, sometimes to fix your collaboration, you don't need to worry about your work management software. You need to think about how your team makes decisions. And it's okay that, um, you know, as you go along in the team habits approach, that you start with meetings and then realize it's something else, but that you started to fix it and the right thing illuminated was, was eliminated is still a huge, huge win. Because at least you can start to solve it better. At least you can do something about it. And why so many people leave average teams is because it feels like it's just going to be Groundhog Day forever. Whatever, whatever the way you do things is, it's just the way things are going to be done, and you can't do anything about it. But retention, morale, belonging, rapport, and performance all go up when we see that in this team of four to eight people, it doesn't have to be Groundhog Day. We don't have to have the printer do what the printer does three times a week and send us on the spiral. We don't have to keep bumping up to each other. We don't have to implicitly participate in everybody else being talked over because no one has pulled Greg aside and let him know that he may be doing something. And a lot of times the Greg or the Amy's or who's ever doing that are actually mortified that they're doing. They just don't know. They're excited. Like, like I was at the beginning of the call, super excited. Talking fast, want to get a lot out, maybe a little insecure, maybe a little incom Not saying that's me. Repeat. Right? Okay, it's me. Um, and they, so they overexert, they overtalk, and then that has, um, that has downstream re- repercussions. And the only reason that continues to happen is because no one told them. No one had took that minute or three of courage and said, Hey, man. Hey, y'all, this is what's going on. Wanted you to know about it. Don't have to make it personal. I'm not trying to shame anybody, I'm not trying to do anything. I just want us all to work better together. And I think we have some ways we can do that. I have a question. What inspires you to continue this work? That's a great question. I have to take you back. Before I started Productive Flourishing and started doing the work that I do now, I was simultaneously completing my PhD in philosophy. I'm a social philosopher and ethicist by training but I was also an army joint forces military coordinator. So I was an officer, I made sure the different forces coordinated about the stuff that was getting dropped off and needed to take the next step. I did this work because, you know, my, my broad start of this was like, what do we need to do so that we individually, collectively and globally thrive and live a good life? And if you take that question seriously, you realize that the best vector to help people do that is with work. Because we spend so many of our waking hours at work or thinking about work. So if we make work better for everyone, and we make work work for everyone, turns out we make everyone's lives better. When you can show up to work, have high belonging, have high performance, feel like you're doing work that matters, feels like your team's got your back, it radically transforms people's lives. And so I'm like, look, if this is what I'm about, this being helping people thrive in life is what I'm about, then let's get busy and let's talk about work. Um, And this is how an ethicist goes from the ivory tower and gets into what I do now. And my experiences in the army and being deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom and seeing... So many people transform, and so many people do things they never thought were possible. And to see so many people create peak moments in their life through collaboration, through really high belonging, through you know high competence, just makes me want to encourage that to happen outside of the context of warfare in the army. Like, this is, y'all, you know, we can do this everywhere. We can do this everywhere and I want us to do it everywhere. So it inspires me when I get defeated and, you know, when I, when I'm feeling like, why does my work matter today? I'm like, you know what? I can't save everything. But like, if I make one team better from this work, that's five people whose life is going to be better. So that's what inspires me to do it. Okay. So I have another good question. So it says, um, hi Charlie. I'm the only one working remotely and often find myself overlooked being overlooked on the screen during meetings. How can I improve the dynamics of meetings while working remotely? All right. So that's a great question. Partially, this is having an on-site buddy that you talk to, because I'm imagining you're going to be on a company like Zoom or be on an app like Zoom. You can always raise your hand and have your buddy be watching out for you to raise your hand so that, you know, you get talked to, um, you get talked to, or you can talk to your manager. Um, Or who's ever the facilitator on the meeting and just request, you know, that every, you know, 20 minutes or so they check in to see if you have any questions that could be, you know, saying, Hey, um, Hey Taylor, do you have any questions here? Or do you have any input that you'd like to put on this? And just to be acknowledged that you're there. So I think those are two things you can do when you're, you're the remote part of the hybrid work. Um, and you've got other people on the meeting. Um, I think the other thing to talk about there, and this is a, a full team discussion, is making it completely okay and coming up with, you know, short codes to be able to say, hey, I just want to jump in real quick. And people know that you jumping in is not necessarily you being rude and disruptive, but you're the person that's remote that people aren't seeing and you sort of have to jump in there and do that kind of whatnot. So um, I think as long as you develop some team habits, just that at it's not you being rude versus you being a contributor. Two, having an on-site buddy that's watching the panel and seeing if you're raising your hand or seeing if you've left them a DM. And then three, having the meeting facilitator actually proactively call you out two or three times for the meeting um, are all three ways that you could make sure that um, you know, your needs the knowledge to be there and that you're not being overlooked. So for the person who submitted that question, I hope that's helpful and thanks for doing so. I think we have time for one more question before we wrap up. So I had this issue like in our daily uh, routine, I have to attend many calls where the uh, leads talk mostly, but we have to attend because they're just adding us in the call. And we waste a lot of time because of that. How can I uh, write over that? Is there a manifest reason why you're there or is it just sort of the version of the CC thread from hell where just everybody gets tagged in? Yeah, like, like whenever they a call they will take most of the developer to listen to like what are they planning. But many times like they will discuss lead activities that does not matter to us. Okay. So I think what you would have to frame this one as Sopo, is just looking at how much it's costing the company to have people on meetings that where they're not really contributing. And I would suggest on this one, if they're just doing some planning and it's just one of those need to know things, between tools like otter.ai. Or designated someone to be the person that comes up with the need to know from the meeting and sends that out. Um, That would be my suggestion for like the solution. Depending upon the personalities involved, it might be harder to do that, but usually money talks. And, you know, having 50 people on a meeting that don't need to be there is a huge cost for a lot of companies. And if they can get the same amount of they can get the same amount of work or the same amount of contribution without having to pay that, they will. Um, usually what I've seen on this one, Sopo, is if there's some sort of readout or there's some sort of like notes that people need to have a the the people running the meeting need to have a way of knowing that people actually like read it. And so for instance, if you're using something like Slack, it could be that someone submits the notes and it's a rule that people give a thumbs up that they read it. Um, and that way people know that they've read it and so on and so forth. So I think, um, what we have there is a really bad communication and planning or, yeah, really bad communication and planning habit that's creating really bad meetings. Um, so if you work on the communication and planning side of it, you usually can work on the meeting side. All right, y'all. I want to honor your time. Thanks so much for joining me again. Again, I'm Charlie Gilkey. I am the author of the forthcoming book team habits. You can find me at productive forward slash fishbowl. Last thing I want to lead you with, same thing that I opened up with Crystal. Think about this week, how you can participate in your team's habit, your team's habits, such that there's a great meeting that people remember that meeting and say, I want uh, to go to another one of those. If you want your work to be better, make it better together.
1: That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon.